Jessica Bylander. And welcome to Health Affairs This Week. Jess, so we've covered the vaccination rollout on this podcast before, and I thought maybe we could just start by checking in. How are things looking in Denver, where you're based? Yeah, I mean, things are looking, I think, pretty good. In Colorado, we're approaching the 1 million mark for people who've gotten the first dose of the vaccine, of the two-dose vaccine. But, you know, one issue I think we're facing here is some inequity in the rollout. So Colorado is a majority white state, but it's looking like a majority of the people receiving the vaccine are white, Where while we know that actually the burden of, of the disease and of infection is higher in Black and Latinx populations. So, so we're seeing some inequity there. Actually, this past weekend, I had a chance to observe a vaccine clinic in a local black church in Colorado. And it was just, it was amazing to see so many people coming in, mostly black people, some Latinx, some white Colorado residents as well. And it's just part of, I think, a push to partner with the community. This one was through UC Health, which is a health system out here, to get people in to receive their vaccine in a community setting and make it a little bit easier to reach people where they are. I know the process of getting a vaccine appointment from what I hear is a nightmare. So that was just one way um, that they're trying to make up for some of those inequities in distribution. So yeah, how are things in Chicago where you are? Yeah, same. There have been some bumps in the road. It's really interesting to see how systems and officials are trying to get creative. That's nice to see here in uh, Chicago. They've uh, just opened up, I think it was 110,000 appointments, which they're going to be running out of a massive clinic at the United Center, the the huge arena where the Chicago Bulls play. My understanding is that something like 500,000 seniors, people 65 and over in Cook County here in Illinois still haven't been vaccinated. So they're really ramping up the opportunities, hopefully, to, to get folks vaccinated. Yeah. And Rob, we have a new vaccine to add to the mix in addition to the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine that are already available, right? Yeah. So the FDA just recently authorized a new vaccine from Johnson & Johnson. The big benefits there is that it's a single dose and does not require quite a significant cold storage. So we're hopeful that will expand access. They've also announced a partnership with Merck to expand production, which is kind of a, a big deal and a surprise to see two major pharmaceutical companies working together. And I think it's just a sign of really how all hands on deck here to get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible. Yeah, I read about that, the, the president kind of touting this. And also the president's COVID-19 Health Equity Task Force met for the first time a week ago. So they were sworn in and they're just starting to talk about their priorities. I, I think one of the earlier ones is data collection. So just making sure we're collecting data on testing, treatment, vaccination by zip codes, education, occupation, just all these variables that we want to find out how we're doing on. So yeah. Yeah, really promising. So speaking of headlines, earlier this week, the New York Times ran a piece by Reed Abelson looking specifically at COVID-19 and nursing homes. And the article really zeroes in uh, on the findings from an article that we published in the new March issue of Health Affairs, right? That's right. It's a paper by Ashvin Gandhi and co-authors. So it's about high staff turnover in nursing homes. They're using some newly available data, and it's showing that the turnover rate is even higher, I think, than past published reports said. 
they found an average annual turnover rate of about 128% across all staff. Wow, that's that seems pretty significant. I think we've sort of generally had a, a sense that there's a lot of t- turnover in these facilities, but it's uh, really interesting to put a number on it. Any other findings of interest from this one? There were a bunch, but I was struck by the fact that if a facility had mostly Medicaid patients, they had higher nursing staff turnover. And also if they were for profit or owned by a chain, they also had higher turnover than nonprofits or or facilities that weren't owned by a chain. Uh, So what's driving this turnover? I I think we won't be the first to say this, but the pay in these facilities is just not commensurate with the amount of work that's required and the importance of the work. So a lot of these jobs pay just above minimum wage. And as you can imagine, that's not going to be very attractive. So given the, the level of work needed, if somebody can find a job elsewhere for the same for the same amount of money, they, they might leave. So that's one factor. And, you know, because Medicaid pays less than other payers, the sense is maybe those facilities just don't have enough money to pay their staff higher wages or offer them benefits. So it sounds like this is a really complicated issue. And I know we've heard a lot of potential solutions floated out there in the last couple of weeks. We've published a number of blogs looking at both payment and workforce interventions that that might help. We'll throw some links in the show notes so folks can check those out. And it's worth noting these data from the Gandhi paper do predate the COVID-19 pandemic, but at the same time, they give some clues about why maybe why COVID-19 did spread so quickly in nursing care facilities. And Rob, I know we ran an article in this month's issue about a model for small nursing homes, and maybe that could offer some potential lessons for the future of nursing home care. Yeah, I think so. Leading to Health is a recurring series of journalists written articles that we publish in the journal every month, looking at health systems pursuing transformation. And this latest piece in the series by uh, reporter Rob Waters focuses on the greenhouse model of nursing homes. And this is really an effort to reinvent what the nursing home looks like. Yeah. So what's what's different between this model and, and the kind of traditional nursing home model that we know about? Yeah, there are two uh, sort of big changes or sort of fundamental uh, shifts in in the greenhouse model. One is really around the architecture of what a greenhouse looks like. Basically, unlike sort of a traditional nursing home where you've got a big building with long hallways and usually double occupancy rooms and patients, you know, gathering in a single large dining hall. These greenhouses are designed with private bedrooms, usually just 12 units around a large cooking, dining, and living area that serves as sort of the center of life. And it really is meant to recreate the feeling of being in your family home. The other big innovation is staffing. And so again, the workforce at a traditional nursing home is pretty large, it's segmented. You've got nursing assistants, janitors, cooks, dishwashers, all doing their own thing. And here you've got basically one group of universal workers that do it all. They're licensed nursing assistants or nursing aides, and they just work in one cottage or sort of one one building and engage really closely with just 10 or 12 residents. That's really interesting. Um, Do we know, you know, 
in this current climate, whether these facilities are doing any better during COVID-19? Are they seeing any, any sort of different outcomes than traditional nursing homes? Yeah, it's interesting. When um, I started working with the reporter on this article, Rob Waters, he had identified a couple of these greenhouse facilities. And this was sort of earlier in the pandemic. And he said, you know, they're not seeing uh, nearly as many infections. They, they're they really um, doing well. Well, as his reporting continued and over the course of a number of months, the uh, virus kind of caught up with a couple of the facilities that he was looking at and and they saw infections increase later. But the thing that's notable is that despite having uh, a number of in- infections in these facilities, the mortality was significantly lower at, at, at the greenhouses than at other nursing facilities. There's recent research from folks at the University of North Carolina that have begun to document this. Reading the piece, I just thought it sounds like a great model, sort of what's the catch. So I'm definitely curious why it hasn't spread more quickly, why we're not seeing these everywhere. Yeah, fair question. And like everything, it comes down to money. The costs to be a resident in one of these facilities is higher than a typical nursing home and and notably higher than the traditional Medicaid rate. And that's just because they're doing more and they're paying, you know, for more professionals and the rooms are or private, all of those factors lead to higher prices. And so I think it's a really promising model, but the next step is really figuring out how to scale it and bring it to people and not just people who can afford it. Yeah. And I, and I wonder if it's, you know, similarly with COVID-19 vaccination, whether we're seeing some of those inequities where it's predominantly going to one group versus another. Yeah, that's right. The The general population at these facilities does tend to be more, more middle class and whiter. And so there is a movement to establish uh, a number of, of greenhouse facilities in uh, more urban settings in ways that should hopefully make them a little more accessible to, to a broader population. We've also heard from advocates that they're working together with sort of the long-term services and supports community to advocate for higher re- Medicaid reimbursement, which should also help. Well, that's a great place to wrap up. Thanks for joining us. If you like this episode, tell a friend. Thanks, Jess. Thanks.